Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show here on this Wednesday morning, the 9th of June. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge. And Paul Perot, we had a pretty delightful first hour there. It seemed like the the theme of that first hour, both from Daryl Crouch and Jim Dennison, was a lot about this idea of discipleship. So you know I'm off for the summer. I'm not teaching students. I think the students are happy that Capster's not (laughs) teaching them currently. I know I'm sitting back in my sandals, sipping my iced tea. You know, there's not much to do in life outside. Oh, of course, of course. The head getting a little tan from the the bald head. All of that good stuff. So so it's been a little while since I've I've had a chance to give a quiz. Okay. And, And we introduced a word at the start of the first hour. That was the word for discipleship in the ancient language. Paul, can you pass this quiz? Do you know the word? Can you remember what we've been talking about in hour one? Um, I know it, the root word is Talmud, so which is disciple or learner or teaching, you know, teaching uh, teachings and such. Uh, Talmudin, was Ta- it? Talmudin. That you know, I I will. Hey, so long as there's not math, yeah, we're good here. We're yeah, good. yeah, no, absolutely. So I will give you a solid B minus for that. Well done. Oh. Oh. <laughs> no, no, that's a B-. good minus. That's a good A. But I was I was just reflecting back, and I mentioned to say something about this idea of geographical proximity, and we were talking about what it means for the Talmudin, for the disciples of Jesus, to move forward is, uh, again, to keep in our, our mind's eye very clear that the church is not a building with a steeple and a sign and a website and a staff. Uh, that can be an appropriate expression of the church, but it simply is an organization. The church is the people of God, the Talmudim, following Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to shine the light and bear witness into the world of the beautiful kingdom in which the power of sin and death has been broken. So th- this is what it means to be the church. We are the church. And it was pretty intriguing as we think about what life as the Talmudim or the church is moving forward. Having lived overseas in uh, Edinburgh in Scotland for a number of years in my life, and we're still okay. back and forth quite a bit, it was, it was really interesting in part of this major cosmopolitan European city that has everything you would need in terms of, again, a large city, and yet we held a going away party for some friends of ours that were moving the equivalent uh, of like Minneapolis to an outer suburb or Atlanta to an outer suburb. Mm. It was maybe 15 miles away. But because life is so contained, even in this major metropolitan city in about a two square mile radius, the church looks and functions really differently. They are not out soliciting people through marketing to come through the doors as a destination and they have products that they offer. They simply see themselves as shepherds of a very small area of a community, Mm. usually around two or three square miles at most. And they're not in competition with other churches. They're not saying we should go reach out to this other community. They're called catchments over there. We're not going to reach out to another catchment to try to draw their members into our catchment. We don't even know how many people from our catchment are going to come on a Sunday morning. We are, but here's what we're going to do. We are going to shepherd the people of our catchment in every way possible, both on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. We are there. We're available. It's a little bit about what Daryl Crouch is doing with some of the ministry uh, that he's yeah. doing, where there really is this sense of 
Um, we don't need to become big. We don't need to solve everything in the world. We don't need to have all the programs for everybody. We don't need to become another big capitalistic enterprise. We simply are going to shepherd the people that God has in front of us. And it was really um, an anchoring and kind of beautiful way to do life. I ended up knowing more people in the community living there from a couple of years than I do having lived 25 years in a western suburb of Minneapolis because we were just simply kind of walking and doing life together in a lot of just normal ways. So I would suggest moving forward, one of the ways in which we can think about doing life together as a church is to maybe um, rethink the idea of these capitalistic enterprises that try to draw lots of people through products and opportunities and and ministries. And not that all of that's been bad. Many Mm -hmm. lives have been beautifully changed in that. But I think moving forward, if we're going to help solve the isolation our young people are feeling... A lot of it is to move into geographical proximity. Okay, a little teaser. We'll be talking later this hour about a book. We're not going to talk about the same topic, but the idea of embodiment. Yes. You embodying as, again, an individual, but also others around you in your community, Christ, to that community. Instead of, we live very suburban, jump here, jump there lives, instead of being right there, being present. Yeah, and Greg Allison will help us talk a little bit about what it means to be a social body like that, like Mm -hmm. we are actually present in our bodies. That'll be up in the second half of this second hour. Up next, we've got John Brandon, regular contributor to the show as well, director of social media and Northwestern Media. We're going to talk through some pretty interesting developments on Twitter about some pay for use there and the relative effectiveness of that. Stay with us. More to come on Mornings Without Carmen. It is just about 11 minutes past the top of the hour, and Peter Kapsner, and delighted to be joined by John Brandon at this point in time, who talks a lot about just the different dimensions and developments within the realm of social media. Good morning, John. Morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the program. I admit that uh, the social media landscape, it changes so quickly, and things are always seems to be dipping and diving and dodging all over in different directions. It's hard to keep up to all the different developments. And one of those developments is that Twitter, which historically has been a platform that has been financially empowered by advertisements that are sort of they, they kind of crowd our feeds, is now offering a pay-per-view kind of or paper, pay-per-use kind of opportunity. Tell us about it. Right, right. So we all get to decide if social media is really worth keeping for the long term because these companies like Twitter and Facebook, they've kind of realized that their business model is maybe not sustainable over the next few years or decades. Uh, Just in case anyone doesn't know this, when you use Facebook or Twitter or some of these other social media apps, you're giving out your information to the companies, and then they're actually selling it to advertisers who show you banner ads and things. And that is the primary revenue producer for all of these apps. Uh, there was kind of an infamous uh, exchange with a senator between uh, Mark Zuckerberg and when he was on a set and hearing committee. And they asked him you know, something about how does Facebook make money? And there was a long, awkward pause. And then Mark said, uh, we run ads. And But what, what a lot of people don't realize is that those ads are, are fed to us because of all of our preferences online, even when we're doing Google searches and things like that. So Twitter has come out and said, well, 
here's one way we're going to try to increase revenue without showing you ads. And, and it's called Twitter Blue, and it just means that you get a few extra perks and features. One of them is that if you send a tweet on Twitter and you realize that it has a typo or you don't like what you're saying to someone, you can undo the tweet, and it, it's like it never existed before. Uh, but this is the monetization of social media, and it's really an attempt to keep us hooked to these apps and keep us using them, but also uh, it gets into an area of even free speech and privacy for users, and that's something I'd love to talk to you about as well. Yeah, I think that would be a great follow-up place to, to go because I, I know that for me, I was Googling just needed to buy a drill, right? I, I don't know how many years ago it was, but <laughs> I, I still remember it to this day that I was like, just what, what kind of drill do I want? And I think, John, for the next maybe three years, any feed, any website I went on, suddenly I had sawhorses and I had hammers and I had lumber and I had everything was that was the ad. And I, I really underestimated how much we're getting tracked and what our privacy looks like online. Yeah, there's kind of a conspiracy theory about that, too, that, you know, maybe you were talking about drills to someone in person around yes. your laptop. And, and people have said, well, oh, they're listening to us. And I, I want to let people know they don't have to listen to us through your webcam. <laughs> uh, they know all about us just from our web search history and our shopping, our Amazon purchases. They they know uh, very fine details about us. This is what's created uh, Facebook and Twitter and made them so successful. Uh, if I run an ad on Facebook as maybe a business owner or something, I can pick the exact type of person that I want to target with my ads so I can decide where they live, their age. I can even decide, you know, are they a Christian music fan or are they a talk radio fan? I can really get granular and that's what's made them so successful. But on the flip side of that, what are we giving up in order to have these companies do all these uh, advertisements to us? And I have to say, it's one of those things where I I think we're going to be finally tested on this and say, uh, you know, is this something that we're really going to want to make use of in the future if we have to pay for it? And and that's a big question I have. Um, one of the things I'd like to explain just really quick is some of us feel like we're we're addicted to social media or we just can't set it aside. Um, that's actually uh, something that's a problem and something I kind of worry about. There's this idea of doom scrolling through social media. But when you talk about being actually dependent on something like food or clothing or where you live, I don't think we're that dependent on it. Um, I remember taking a social media fast for a couple of months once, and I didn't really miss it, and I feel like I wasn't dependent on it. So anything that we're not dependent on, then we have to decide, would we be willing to pay for it? And I would say probably not. So I don't think this uh, effort by Twitter is, is really going to uh, do anything to kind of bring in more revenue. Uh, I think it's just kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea from them. Well, it's interesting to know, too, because businesses are pretty intelligent about trying to look around the corner maybe a year or two or three or four years out. And so when we see something like this from Twitter, which is trying to generate revenue in that way, it, do, you, do you see maybe it's a bit of a response, at least the first part of a response that so, some of these social media companies are experiencing where you and me and Paul, all of our listeners, we're starting to get a bit of this ad fatigue. We're starting to get a bit of, I don't want my privacy to be tracked all the time. And are, are they maybe trying to get ahead of that curve because they see a different kind of situation coming? 
Yeah, and it's interesting too because I think earlier you mentioned something about how these apps are changing and improving, and I think I do think they're they're changing the feature set and they're kind of adding new things. But I look back over the last ten year history, and I think we're still all posting baby photos. We're still kind <laughs> of being, you know, we're criticizing each other a little too much. I don't know if they've really evolved to the point where, oh wow, I'm so dependent on this and I'm willing to pay for it. Uh, I think we're all getting a little bit like, eh, when is this going to get better? When am I going to find some actual usefulness out of this? Yeah, it sure would be nice to see the pendulum swing back to a bit of moderation as you're describing like that, John. I think like anything else, something new in a society, it, the, the pendulum really swings a certain kind of direction. And it seemed like social media and all of these different apps and places really dominated the landscape. But but hopefully over time, moderation, we get back to some other forms of communication with each other too. Well, let's take a short break and when we come back, we'll change the conversation. I know that we want to talk about a book that is called Master of One by Jordan Rayner. It's a pretty interesting premise here, the idea that maybe you and me, we don't have to be good at absolutely everything. So, John, before the break there, we were talking a little bit about this book, The Master of One by Jordan Rayner. And it's a it's an intriguing premise. I don't know how well it's going to fit somebody like me who likes to sort of seems to have hands in, in a lot of different pots in that. But but that can get pretty uh, anxiety creating when you're jumping around from thing to thing to thing, thinking then you have to master all those things. Tell us a little bit about the premise of this book. Yeah, and I, I wanted to talk about Jordan because he's someone I've been getting to know. I'm a book author myself. And he has a new book coming out, uh, I believe it's in uh, September or October, called Redeeming Your Time. He's a productivity expert uh, coming at it from a Christian perspective, just like myself. This is his previous book, and I I highlighted it on my website, uh, 7minutesolution.com, kind of in preparation for my book and then getting to know him. I've done a couple Zoom calls with him. This is a really, really smart guy who knows how to contextualize what's happening in the work world with what it means to be a Christian today. And a lot of his points in this Master of One book, which I really recommend, is that as Christians, we are created to excel at something. Uh, A lot of times the the hard part is figuring out what do you excel at, you know. Uh, In my case, I found that technology and writing and book authorship Uh, for you probably being a professor. Uh, But once you find that thing, kind of your vibe or or your muse, however you want to call it, then, you know, we're kind of created in the image of God to do, to pursue something and say, I'm going to be really good at this. I'm going to be really good at work in some sense. And what happens, I think, when we do that is it's glorifying to God. So, when I, when I write my articles and I write books and things like that, I always tell people, you know, I've just gotten this favor from God. He gave me these gifts, and I'm just so happy about it and just thrilled with the idea that I get to have some gift from God that I was created to do and then to glorify him in, in using that gift. Yeah, and I think just that gift— it, are there helpful ways to identify those sorts of things that you're good at? Are, are you able to sort of say, hey, this is sort of native to me. It's intuitive to me. I kind of understand it without having to think about it much. I mean, I know that it's one of those questions a lot of people ask about themselves. What am I good at? What, what am I? Maybe they'll sort of 
theologize their language? What have I been called to do? How do we sort of discern those kinds of things that maybe we want to head towards mastery of? Yeah, and Jordan uh, touches on this in his book, but the the one thing I would say to anyone listening to this is make sure you find a mentor out there. Uh, I've mentored a lot of students over the years, and I'm working with two students right now, and I'm always trying to give them feedback about, you know, in a really positive way, you, you did a great job with this social media post and your wording on this article or whatever it is. And I think if you have that champion kind of sort of that third person perspective on your life and saying, uh, giving you feedback about what you've done really well. And also sometimes there's like that silence of like, you know, you tried something new and then everybody just sort of doesn't say much about it. <laughs> and I think those are really valuable as well. Uh, you know, in, in my case, I tried a music career once and I remember I had a vocalist and we did some concerts and there was very few people there. And uh, they, they would clap politely when we were done. I realized pretty, pretty fast that it wasn't for me. And I think that that redirected my life as well, because uh, as my wife would tell you, you know, it took a lot of time. And, and I was kind of doing a deep dive in the music realm. And then I switched to writing shortly after that and, and really found my calling with that as, as well. Yeah, there's nothing like polite and patronizing clapping to give you a little bit of discernment about how you're doing with something. Love that, John. Well, you know, we've been kind of weaving in this theme of the Talmud or the Talmudim to be a disciple. And, and with some of the language I've read about over the years about what it means to be a disciple is you're you're simply an apprentice in kingdom living. You are, you're a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of him. And when you're talking about how you're mentoring young people, and, and just really anybody, we all, if we're moving towards mastery and something that we believe God has gifted with uh, us with and, and maybe to shine his light in the world, we really do need to have other people who have been on that same kind of journey to help lead the way. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's just something really valuable about having that person come alongside of us and maybe they're a master in their field. They're a writer, they're a professor, and they can kind of give us that guidance and then I think I just want to make sure I emphasize that at that point, when we find that mastery, it's not about our own self-improvement or self-fulfillment. It's really about using those gifts for others. And, and that's really what Jordan's writing about in his book and, and in, even in his new book is how do we use our time effectively as a way to glorify God and to kind of do kingdom work for his glory. Yeah, I think those are some of the, the great invitations into the future. We've just got about a minute or two left here, John. Why don't we cover quickly? I know you've talked about it on the program before, but this app Clubhouse, there seems to be maybe a, a, a fading away of this app as a place where people are going. Yeah, in the social media realm, I'm kind of bummed out about this one. I was really a big fan of Clubhouse, but their numbers have just been going down each month. And honestly, the biggest thing for me is I held a Clubhouse chat and I just couldn't get anybody to go to it. And that wasn't the case a few months ago where I had hundreds of people join in. So I just feel like I'm just hearing crickets on this one right now. Hmm. Yeah, again, some of these apps, they rise up and they gain a pretty big following, but they just don't seem to have that staying power. Well, thanks for all that you do, just helping us walk through some of the new forms of communication, some of the new media that's coming out that's worth paying attention to. Have a great rest of the morning, John.
Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll take a short break and uh, some bottom-of-the-hour news coming up. We're going to actually talk a little bit about the national day that is today because, you know, Paul, I'm a bit of a of a sap. I'm a bit of a sucker for whatever the national day happens to be. So we'll cue that up, and then in the second half of this hour, we'll be joined by author Greg Allison, talk a little bit about embodied and maybe just the sanctity of the body and how there's not this disconnection between our spirit and our person. So lots more to come. Stay with us on Mornings Without Carmen. Well, Paul, you know, we would be remiss if at some point in these two hours together with all of our fellow listeners that we didn't at least reference what the National Day might be. I I, I do not know who has the credibility and the authority to make National Days, but there's all kinds of them. Yeah, and that's, that gives us a little preview of all things today. Again, I don't know where this comes from. It, it is National Donald Duck Day. And so how does Donald Duck out of all of the Disney characters? And we're not talking well, Daffy sh- Duck, right? No, this is, no that's Warner Brothers. Come on. I, I don't understand my, my production genres, that's for sure. But Donald Duck out of day, does Mickey Mouse, does, does Goofy, does Pluto, does some of these original D- Disney characters, Minnie Mouse, do they all have their day? Or is this just only Donald Duck? Uh, well, I'm sure they all do. This is just the date that I think the first Donald Duck cartoon debuted in theaters. Okay, well, in fairness, that was pretty groundbreaking at that point in time. I mean, Walt Disney certainly had a vision uh, for the world. It's a little different than what it was and what it can be today, but it is indeed Donald Duck Day. I don't know how, as believers, we are called to celebrate Donald Duck Day. We obviously, on this program, try to intersect our... (laughs) Exactly. There, see, we try uh, yeah, to intersect our faith well. in life. Yeah, but that, yeah. It, it doesn't help us as the Talmudim to grow in our faith, right? But we can at least celebrate that today is Donald Duck Day. So if you are a Disney person, and I confess that I do enjoy going to Walt Disney World, looking forward to getting back again today, would be just that day for you. If you have a favorite Disney character, in fact, you probably would get my attention on the text line at 877-933-2484. If you want to text in and tell me your favorite Disney character, and why. We'll take a short break, and uh, for the last interview of the day, excited to be joined by author Greg Allison. We're going to talk about the book Embodied and what it means to bring back together sort of this realm of the spirit with the realm of the body in a sacred way. This is Max Licato. How does Jesus receive us? I know how he treated me. I was a 20-year-old troublemaker on a downhill path, and though I'd made a commitment to Christ a decade earlier, you wouldn't have known it by the way I lived. Finally, I came to Jesus, and he welcomed me back. Please note, he did not accept my behavior, but he accepted me, his wayward child. He said, come back, I'll clean you up. He was full of grace and truth. Not just grace, but truth. And not just truth, but grace. Grace and truth. Grace told the adulterous woman, I do not condemn you. But truth told her, go and sin no more. Jesus shared truth, but graciously, and Jesus offered grace, but truthfully, grace and truth. Acceptance seeks to offer both. This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens. Welcome back to the show. It's about 22 minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge and maybe made the fortunate or unfortunate mistake, Paul, of referencing that it's Donald Duck Day and uh, getting some Disney characters in. But thankfully, Kim wrote in and said her favorite is 
Thumper with the happy, delightful outlook on life. I love that. Thumper is a great character. If you've got a, fa- a favorite Disney character, text it in at 877-933-2484. It's time to welcome author Greg Allison into the show with his book, Embodied. Greg, a great book. I really appreciate it. But before we start, you have a fa- uh, favorite Disney character? I would have to say Mickey Mouse. My dad was born the same year that uh, Mickey Mouse was released. So his nickname was Mickey. So he's always <laughs> been my favorite. I love it. Well, this book is, an, I think, an exciting, encouraging book. I know you do a lot of work in the fields of theology and church history. And this idea of the split between the realm of the spirit, which we see sort of as good in the realm of the flesh or the realm of the body, uh, and maybe even flesh isn't the right word for that. It's a different word in, in Scripture. Is It's a really interesting split that you as a historian, I'm sure, you can tie it back to some of the Gnosticism of Jesus's day where they saw kind of the split as well. And that was considered a heretical idea. It was, and it goes way back uh, centuries before Christ lived to Plato and in, in the school of philosophy that he developed. And the idea is that uh, our spirit, our soul, our immaterial being is what is most important about us, what's true about us, the, the inherently good part of us. And then the body, uh, whatever is physical or material, is inherently evil. And this, there's that split. And, and, and sadly, it infected the church and continues to infect us today. Yeah. What are some of the implications, would you say, just from a, 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 how it affects us negatively to be in the split? And then from that place, we can start talking about the coming back together of sort of the gender, particular social, sexual body, all of these topics that you have in your book. But what are some of the negative implications we've been living in? And maybe we're not even aware of them. Well, let's just take worship for one example. Uh, At least among my tribe, we tend to worship very intellectually. It's very heady. Uh, There's not much movement when we gather together corporately. Uh, We sing, we sit, uh, you know, we listen. But Scripture calls us to express our worship to God in our very bodily posture and physical activity, like raising our hands, kneeling, clapping, shouting amen. So we may not even be aware of it, but this this idea, this split between the good interior part and the evil exterior part is manifested in our worship experiences. I think that's a great example, Greg, because I know... Uh, for me, that just even some of the language of the Psalms, like I, I don't know what was in David's mind and heart when he just talks about the worshiping God the way he does, and, and the clapping of the hands, and the playing of music, and the shouting of horns. That, that for me, as a as a Midwesterner, probably is going to be pretty unfamiliar to my experience. And what it points out too is that there are denominational differences, there are regional differences, geographical, generational differences like this. But Scripture is pretty clear that uh, God wants us to worship him, not only wholeheartedly, but with a full bodily experience and expression of physical activity, Mm. because we're embodied beings. Well, the subtitle of your book is Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. And before getting into some of the specific topics in this, just kind of give us a flyover, a quick overview of why you wrote it and maybe what what the full premise is. A number of years ago, a student came into my office. Uh, I'm a seminary professor, and and he was experiencing a bunch of uh, physical problems. Uh, He couldn't sleep, you know, played with insomnia, who was having uh, digestive problems, couldn't concentrate, excretory problems, all kinds of aches and pains. And he asked me, you know, what's the spiritual problem at the heart of this? And I just began to ask him a series of questions about his physicality. What is he eating? What's he How about exercise, sleeping, resting, things like that? He got very perturbed with me. He wanted a spiritual answer from Scripture about what's the spiritual problem. And I kept coming back to the fact, I 
think this is a physical problem. He huffed and puffed and eventually just left my office very dissatisfied. That sent me then on a pilgrimage to think through what does scripture actually affirm about life and the human body? What's a good theology, a robust theology of human embodiment? Because God has created us, his image bearers, to be embodied. So in terms of that theology, Greg, a passage of Scripture comes to mind in which it, uh, the invitation is to guard your heart, or in Jewish thinking, the heart would have been that center uh, or the steering mechanism of your interior world. It's where your values were. It's where your dispositions were. It's, it's how you sort of thought about the world before you even really think about the world. So guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life, and, and the wellspring sort of being the social, physical expression. And, and the wellspring and the heart really do work back and forth in terms of the wellspring informs the values of the heart, the values of the heart inform the expression of the wellspring. Is that a, a fair take on a, on a more holistic theology of mind, body, and spirit? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I really like that. The heart, the wellspring of my life, we often, though, conceive of that as this immaterial uh, center. But we as human beings, being embodied, we can't even have a wellspring of life from a heart. And it's not talking literally about our heart there, but everything that we do, all that we are, every activity, every thought, um, uh, every posture that we adopt has a connection with our body because there's this psychosomatic unity, there's this body, soul, and, and, and body unity. So we can't even uh, worship God as we talked about. We can't express uh, who we are, engage in activities without a, a human body, without being embodied by God's design. Yeah, I you know when you look at some of the the chapters of your book, and there's so many that we could talk through here out of the the thirteen or so that are there, from the created body to the gendered body to the particular body, social body. Uh, chapter five, you reference the sexual body, and of course, that is one of the top of the mind topics today, with so many things having changed in sexual norms in the last fifteen or so years. Maybe just give us a little window into that chapter. So let me back up to chapter four, which is a social body. And this is the idea that God has designed us as gendered, embodied image bearers to be in relationship with one another, to be in relationship with him, but also to engage socially with one another, to want to receive community and uh, propel ourselves into fellowship and bonding with others. So there is a way that God has designed us such that we uh, naturally, by his design, relate to one another. There's one relationship that uh, among all these relationships that we will enjoy that would be reserved for a sexual activity. And the sexual body comes into play then between one man and one woman, a husband and wife who enter into a covenantal monogamous relationship with one another. And it is there and there only that it's properly expressed, that sexual body is, is properly expressed, which goes against the grain of everything that uh, screams at us from our culture today. Yeah, I think those are some of the things that we explore in my sexuality class, Greg, is the idea of that intersection of sort of the, the mysterious one flesh union that Paul even describes as, as a great mystery that happens or a sealing of the hearts that we read about in Song of Solomon. And yet, when you when you look at that beautiful one flesh covenant of the union that's meant for the monogamous relationship, there science is re revealing that. Um, husband and wife begin to actually share one another's DNA on some level. So a very physical expression. They actually swap those pieces of themselves in the midst of this too. And it's great evidence that what is going on in the realm of the physical also is manifesting in the realm of the spiritual. And boy, if we can even start getting our head around some of those things, we're, we're going to see, I think, some, some help and reformation of sexuality into the future. 
I really agree. There's this burgeoning field called epigenetics, I think is what you're referencing, yes. this, this idea that there are parts of our DNA that are switched on and switched off just from physical contact and all. And, and so we carry that, and, and which, again, emphasizes the main point of my book, that God has created us as embodied human beings. The proper state of human existence is embodiment. God created an entirely different realm. We call it the angelic realm, angels. Uh, that are immaterial. They are not embodied, but God designed human beings in his image to be embodied. And, and so there is this reality with which we have to wrestle. Yeah, Greg, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to enter into that tension a little bit about our embodied self in the midst of a fallen world, knowing that one of the great promises of the future is that this perishable body is going to be raised imperishable. So how do we live in the tension of knowing that sort of this husk in which I live right now will ultimately fail and it needs to fail in order for me to be raised imperishable, but how can we yet manifest the wonder of that imperishable body in the midst of this present time? So we'll get into that next year with Greg Allison as we're talking about his book, Embodied. We are chatting this morning with Greg Allison about his book, Embodied, Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. And we have some good news. Not only is that book available on Amazon and all the usual channels, but we have some books that are available as part of a giveaway. Paul, I think we'll probably be doing a drawing if people want to text in. Yes, just text the word book, just those four letters, B-O-O-K, to 877-933-2484. We'll send you a kickback message. Click on the link. Get your name entered in for the drawing. Yeah, we'd love to give this book away. A really important subject that I think can bring some healing back into some of these topics. So again, text the word book to 877-933-2484, and we'll get you into a possibility of getting this text. Greg, you and I were talking during the break a little bit about some pretty intriguing things following up on what you referenced about epigenetics. And I know it was my brother who's a, a biology teacher, uh, professor at a local university as well. He clued me into this field maybe 10 years ago about epigenetics are those, those influences beyond the genetic realm that actually then uh, affect our expression of our genes, they affect our DNA that we, we shift and change by our environment around us. And you had some pretty intriguing things from that. So I've been deeply affected by a book written by Sister Prudence Allen called The Concept of Woman. She tra traces the view of women, uh, the men's view of women, over the course of the last thousands of years uh, from philosophers and theologians and things like that. And, and her point is that uh, women have been uh, typically mistreated and disregarded by men, considered inferior a, a, as a very as a sex, as a, as a gender, as human beings, and and uh, I think one of the conclusions that we can draw from her study is that that women themselves bear genetically down to the level of their DNA this mistreatment, this disregard, this sense of inferiority. So not only are they battling maybe certain uh, role issues or positions in society, not only are they battling that. But within them, very them very themselves, they, they carry this uh, mistreatment, this downtroddenness, making it doubly or triply more difficult for them to live as uh, redeemed image bearers uh, according to uh, the Lord's will. Yeah, I, I just think these are some of the underexplored dimensions of our faith because when you look back at some of the concepts of uh, the Hebrew Old Testament, there, there were generational ideas that it wasn't just some immaterial thing, but there was actual realities getting passed along the generations, even from Genesis 3, the idea of enmity between the serpent seed and the seed of the woman. And, and there's just a lot there that I think 
we can recapture some of the what what it means to be a whole person in this world. Exactly, and and we see this uh, just thinking about our contemporary situation, uh, generational sins. Uh, think of uh, three that I deal with in my book: uh, lust, uh, so so addiction to pornography, for example. Uh, slothfulness, uh, lack of any activity, not willing, uh, not willing to work, and and then gluttony, this propensity towards overeating, making our bellies an idol, and we see this passed on from generation to generation. And again, as we're focusing on, th- this isn't just an immaterial reality; it, it's it's embodied. It's very much within our uh, physical selves. Yeah, that uh, we're talking with Greg Allison this morning. I'm going to follow up in just a second, Greg. I just want to remind our listeners that we have some books available as part of a giveaway. So you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. A lot of you have already done so. I think it's a really important book that can, uh, again, underexplore dimension of our faith. And Greg, I'm curious your thoughts on this because how we are embodied is part of this journey. But we also live in the tension of a fallen world where we we're, we are waiting to be raised imperishable in, in a new kind of body as well. So how do we live in the tension of this perishable shell that we're living in while we're waiting for the imperishable, but still to do so in a way that honors God and is holy? I think it starts with a, a different perspective on ourselves as embodied, <clears throat> not looking at our bodies as a, a husk or a shell uh, or something to steward like we would our time and our treasures, our, our money and, and things and, and uh, abilities, not viewing our bodies in instrumentalist terms, but viewing ourselves as uh, completely embodied image bearers by God's design. And therefore, we don't just take care of our body. We don't just treat our bodies well. We care for ourselves. We treat ourselves well which then includes things like good nutrition and regular exercise, proper rest and sleep. Yes, our body is going to be sloughed off at death, but uh, it's not just a container that we're going to get rid of and get back. We are our body. And so we're called by God, I think, to live out our image bearing in the fullness as, as whole people in a fractured world. I love that, Greg. We have just a couple minutes left here, but I was, as you're talking, I was thinking about a time when one of my children, very at a very early age, we were just talking about death and the and the afterlife and that which is to come, and was kind of having some fun exploring on the basis of Jesus's body that it's quite possible we'll be able to appear and disappear or walk through walls, uh, hide our countenance, these kinds of things. I don't know what the imperishable body is going to be, but by the time I was done, he looked up at me and he said, "Dad." I want to die. And I thought, well, well, hang on a second. This isn't where we want to go with that story. But there was this sort of delightful hope in, within the innocence of this child that was looking forward to the future. And then the heart of our faith really is to manifest that beautiful hope of the future in this present world. So we're even in some ways bearing witness by how we use our bodies. Absolutely. And, and I love what, what, what your child said. Our ultimate hope is not just to die and be with Jesus in heaven as disembodied Christ followers. That will be wonderful and glorious. But Paul looks upon that intermediate state between our death and Jesus' return as a period of, uh, he kind of shudders in horror at it. He talks about being naked and unclothed, that is uh, being disembodied. And that's not the proper state of human existence. So we long for not to go to be with Jesus as disembodied Christ followers in heaven, but ultimately, we long for Jesus's return, at which time we will be re-embodied with our glorified resurrection bodies, and we will live with him 
forever for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, which is a physical place. Now, that is exciting stuff, Greg. It really is. Again, if you're listening this morning, we have a book available as part of a giveaway. If you want to text the studio at 877-933-2484, a different kind of take on some really important things within our Christian faith that, again, has been underappreciated. Greg, thanks so much for writing this book and joining us for a bit this morning. Peter, thanks for being a great host. Great questions. Thanks for the interaction. Great. Have a great rest of the morning. We'll take a short break here and wrap up our show for the 9th of June. Man, oh man, Paul, I could have talked with Greg for quite some time. That is quite the field. I did, I did threaten, to, threaten to overlap all future programming the rest of the day. We are going to go till noon uh, here Central I Time it was with 1030. Greg. Well, it, but it became clear we were going to need to go uh, to noon with Greg. That was a really great conversation. Again, you still have a little bit of time to text into the studio at 877-933-2484 to have a chance to get a copy of the book embodied. Just such an important conversation. But again, delightful as always to be with you. That wraps up our show for the day, uh, one more time, we'll kind of reference the theme of the day, and that was the word Talmudim or the word disciples. We are followers of Jesus in this world, and we do it imperfectly. Uh, we don't wait to be disciples until we get it all right. We are actually disciples the moment we say yes to following Jesus. And then it's a journey from there of growing into Christ likeness in the way that we think, in the character of our heart, how we express ourselves in the world. It is not an easy journey in the midst of this present darkness, but uh, stay together in this journey. We'll keep meeting together uh, like this and, and talking about what life is like in Jesus's beautiful kingdom and inviting each other to shine his light in the world. Have a great day, everybody, and I will catch you tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.